They're called the New Atheists. Who are they? Is there anything new about what they believe? Why are they so influential? Today, an evaluation on the so-called New Atheists. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zukerin, a program examining today's crucial spiritual and social issues. Recently, Dr. Zukerin spoke before an audience on the rise of the New Atheist. And in case you're not familiar with the term, the most common definition of atheism is the view or belief that God does not exist. Well, what kind of an impact does atheism have on individuals and societies? We'll hear part two today. And as you listen, we want to invite you to check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. You can download past shows featuring interviews with leading thinkers and equip and inform yourself with Pat Zuckerin's books and articles. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's Pat Zuckerin. The new atheists like, like Dawkins assert that real scientists must be atheists. Yet he neglects to acknowledge that there are numerous scientists who believe in God. Not necessarily Christians, okay, but some of the top scientists in the world acknowledge there's some kind of intelligent designer out there. Here's some of them. Okay, and these men aren't necessarily Christians, okay, but they're well-recognized scientists. First one is a guy named Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle invented the steady-state theory. But this is what he says as he studied the universe. He says... A super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology. The next one is an award-winning physicist. His name is Robert Griffiths, okay, the winner of one of the most prestigious mathematical awards given by science. And he writes this, if we need an atheist to debate, I go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. Next guy is an award-winning scientist with NASA. Okay, he's not a Christian either. He's an agnostic. His name is Robert Jastro. And he writes this in his book, God and the Astronomers. For the scientist who has lived by faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Next guy is one of the top scientists of our day, leader of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins. And he stated this in an address at the White House alongside President Clinton and many of the top government officials. And he says, it's a happy day for the world. It is humbling and awe-inspiring for me that we caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book previously only known to God. And finally, from the top atheist, Anthony Flew. Here's a man who in his biography states he debated C.S. Lewis, and apparently he had C.S. Lewis shaken up by the arguments he was presenting. Since David Hume, there hasn't been an atheist philosopher who presented any kind of new and powerful argument. Anthony Flew did. And if you are uh, in the field of philosophy or apologetics, you had to deal with Anthony Flew. He was the top thinking atheist out there, the Billy Graham of the atheists. You had to deal with this guy. That's how significant he was. Well, uh, about five years ago, he came to faith in God. Okay? He's not a Christian, but he came to believe in a God. All right? And uh, he wrote this in an article. Darwin saw that there was a problem with the origin of life. It is simply out of the question that the first living matter evolved out of dead matter and then developed into an extraordinary, complicated creature of which we have no examples. There must have been some intelligence. Okay, so here's some of the uh, top scholars in the field of science and philosophy stating their belief 
in an intelligent creator. It is not an irrational faith. Science has not disproven God. Science is not at war with Christianity. In fact, many see that the evidence in science affirms the existence of an intelligent designer. Science is the study of the natural world, and the Bible states that the natural world points to an intelligent creator. And that's what the evidence, more and more that we're discovering, seems to be pointing to. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. If you study science and creation, the complexity and order that you see point to an intelligent designer and uphold our faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, the more we're discovering in science, okay, the more it's beginning to affirm intelligent design. I remember I was speaking with a young man not too long ago, and he said, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure okay, I can keep my faith in Christ in the science field I'm in. I said, what, what field are you in? He said, I'm in physics. And he says, I feel I have to jettison my brain in order to maintain my faith in Christ. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, the evidence seems irrefutable now. The redshift, the expanding universe, you know, on and on. It, it se- it's almost irrefutable that the universe began with the Big Bang. And it's called the Big Bang Theory. And he said, I don't know if I can maintain my faith in Christ when all the evidence shows that the universe began with, with the Big Bang. And I looked at him and I said, well, Big Bang cosmology fits right in very well with Christianity. And he was surprised. He said, what do you mean? He said, everything I learned about the Big Bang, uh, supposedly it goes against Christianity. I said, no, why does it? So Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, the Bible teaches the universe has a beginning. And there's a very important law here. It's called the law of causality. Whatever has a beginning must have a cause. If the universe has a beginning, and all the scientific evidence shows that now, the Big Bang, if the universe has a beginning, the universe must have a cause. Nothing causes nothing causes nothing. Whatever created the universe is greater than the universe. Time begins with the universe. Whatever created the universe is greater than time. What is something greater than time? Something outside of time. It's called an eternal being. (laughs) Whatever created this universe is extremely intelligent to put all this together. Whatever created this universe is extremely powerful to put all this together somehow. You know what? It's beginning to sound more and more like the God of the Bible. The Big Bang cosmology actually fits very well with the Christian worldview and with biblical teaching. And he was so surprised. And we finally realized you don't have to jettison your brain to embrace Christianity. In fact, the application is this. Science and faith in God are not enemies. That's a myth being perpetuated by these new atheists that you see in science in in, in the public education system. Science actually is beginning to firm faith in an intelligent designer. The third assertion, belief in God is dangerous. You know, many of these new atheists portray religion as dangerous. But what the new atheists are attacking really is misrepresentations of God and misrepresentations of Christianity. Hey, Richard Dawkins, once again, he writes this regarding the God of the Bible. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, a jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Well, no Christian believes in a God like that. The Old Testament doesn't present a God like that. Richard Dawkins is pretty much showing he doesn't understand Christianity or biblical teaching. He's got a very superficial 
understanding of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. So they, they attack a misrepresentation of God that they have created, and they attack a misrepresentation of Christianity. We call this attacking a straw man. One of the terms that they use is fundamentalist. Fundamentalist. They apply that term to fundamentalist Muslims and to Christians. And as a result, the illusion is created that the two are equivalent in their teachings. If you're a fundamental Muslim, you're a morally equivalent of a fundamentalist Christian. In fact, Rosie O'Donnell stated in September 2006, she said, Radical Christianity is just as threatening as radical Islam in a country like America. And many will point to uh, the jihadists as well as the atrocities that were done in the Crusades. And many of these new atheists equate Islamic riots, like Dawkins in his book, equates the Islamic riots against the Danish cartoonists. Remember just a couple of years ago, these Danish cartoonists did a cartoon of Muhammad and riots broke out in the streets all over the world. Hundreds of people were killed. Many churches throughout the world were burned and destroyed as a result of these riots. And Dawkins equates these riots not with Islam, but with religion, any kind of religion, all religion. And new atheist errors that they believe all teachings in all the religions are equal and the same. And it's called moral equivalency. And that's a big uh, idea being perpetuated in our country and in Hollywood today. I mean, the president and our secretary of the state going around the world apologizing you know, for the things the United States have done, you know, the evil United States. Uh, when the United States has done so much good throughout the world, I mean, what country you know, has defeated a nation like Germany and Japan and then invested billions of do- millions of dollars to rebuild that nation and then leave? You know, what nation has done that? You look throughout history, when nations conquer another nation, they stay. Look what Russia did to Eastern Europe. Uh, but if you study the teachings between Jesus and Muhammad, they are significantly different. There's a big difference between a Christian fundamentalist and an Islamic fundamentalist. Hey, what is a fundamentalist being defined here as? One who takes literally and seriously the example of their founder and the teachings in their holy writings. Hey, well, let's see if you're taking the teachings of Muhammad and his example seriously. Hey, let's see what kind of example he left. Muhammad was a warrior in his lifetime. He was involved in 29 battles. Many of them were against peaceful farming villages, but Muhammad was a man of the sword. Okay? He, uh, he fought in four major battles. Okay? In one of those battles in which he was defeated, the Battle of Uhud, uh, he departed with a bloodied face, swearing revenge okay, on all uh, those who were in the opposing army. Okay? Muhammad, when he was criticized, had those critics assassinated. I've read his official biography by Ibn Ishaq. He assassinated a hundred-year-old man who criticized him, killed him in his sleep. And then when a a young pregnant woman criticized Muhammad, he looked at his men and he said, who will rid me of Marwan's daughter? And a man, one of his followers, volunteered and killed her and her unborn baby. And when this man felt guilty about what he'd done, he went to Muhammad and Muhammad said, two goats won't butt their head over her. And what does the Quran teach? Well, in the Quran, there's two divisions in the world of Islam. You have the house of Islam, and everyone else belongs to the house of war. Let's look at the teachings of Islam. In the Quran, chapter 9 of the Quran, Muhammad taught this regarding unbelievers. Chapter 9 of the Quran, 
Fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them, beleaguer them, lie in wait for them in every stratagem. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor in the last day, nor hold that forbidden which has been forbidden by Allah and his prophet. Uh, acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are people of the book, okay? meaning Christians and Jews, okay? until they pay the tax okay? and are willing to live as second-class citizens. That's what Muhammad taught regarding treatment of unbelievers. Next, I will instill terror into the hearts of unbelievers, smite you above their neck, and smite all their fingertips off them, because they contested against Allah and his apostle, Allah is strict in punishment. Hey, that's what the Quran teaches in regards to unbelievers. Big difference from what our Lord Jesus Christ taught. Violence goes against the very nature of Christ's teachings. Yes, there are Christians who have abused, who have abused the teachings of Christ, but that doesn't prove that Christianity is a dangerous faith. We can go right back to the example of Christ and the teachings of the New Testament and show that killing in the name of Christ is contrary to everything Christ and his early followers stood for. And Christ taught, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, he said, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Next passage. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You can see the tremendous contrast between the teachings of Christ and the teachings of Muhammad in the Quran. You see a big difference between the example Muhammad said, he was a man of the sword, and the example that Christ said, okay, who died even for those who nailed him to the cross, his final words being, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The new atheists allege that religions promote division by creating the in-groups and the out-groups. Okay, but if you look at the teachings of Christ and the Old Testament, Jesus Christ said, to love your neighbor. And when he was asked, well, who's my neighbor? He told the story of the good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Wait a minute. The Samaritan's not a Jew. In fact, Samaritans are despised by Jews. And Jesus put the Samaritan as the hero in that story. John chapter 4, right? Sitting by the well, a Samaritan woman comes and Jesus ends up talking to a despised Samaritan woman, bringing her to a knowledge of faith in himself. In Matthew chapter 8, Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my servant is sick, but don't come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to be in my house. Just say the word, and I know he'll be well. And Jesus commends the faith of that Roman centurion. He says, There's, I have not seen faith like this uh, anywhere in Israel. And he was commending a non-Jewish person there. If you understand the Old Testament, Genesis 12 the reason God created Israel is that the entire world may come to a knowledge and a relationship with God. That was Israel's mission. They were to live in obedience to God, and as a result, a special relationship would develop. As a result, the nations of the world would come to Israel and say, hey, teach us. Teach us about your God. That was the mission of the nation of Israel. So if you, if you study the Bible and you look at the life of Christ, you realize if everyone in the world applied the teachings of Christ, uh, the world would actually be a pretty peaceful place. And let's not forget the results of atheistic philosophy. You can build a case that atheism is dangerous. Nietzsche, a man who stated that God is dead, stated that once God is dead, there's going to be blood in the streets. Why is that? We're going to end up with this kind of moral relativism which might end up being a might-makes-right kind of ethical system. And as a result, hey, we'll have blood in the streets. 
And what happened when atheistic philosophies took foothold in Western culture? Well, there you go. The death of God leads to the death of man. Hitler, who committed to evolutionary philosophy, murdered over 20 million people. Okay? Stalin, over 18 million. Mao Zedong, okay? all uh, who embraced atheistic socialism. He murdered uh, nearly 30 million of his own people. Pol Pot, okay, and others that embraced atheistic socialism has been responsible for the death of millions, probably more. Atheistic philosophy has been responsible for the murder of more people than religion throughout the history of mankind. So atheism is actually dangerous. And that is the result of atheistic philosophy here. So the life lesson we learn is this. We must understand our faith well enough to dispel false myths that keep people from Christ. And we've got to know our faith well enough that we can dispel these kinds of false myths that keep people from Christ. Paul said this, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Our job as Christians is to dispel these kinds of false myths being perpetuated by skeptics and these new atheists correct incorrect thinking and present the case for Jesus Christ. And finally, the fourth point, religion is the result of an evolutionary process. Is this indeed the case? Well, men like Dawkins and these new atheists are referring to a work by a man named Jane Fraser called The Golden Bow. This book was written in the late 19th century. This is an old book, and much of the work there has been debunked. But they say religion is the result of an evolutionary process that looks like this. We begin with that religion originates with man. Man has some kind of need for a father figure or comfort in a dark world or fear of the unknown, so they create this kind of father figure of a god. Now, it originates with man. The oldest form of religion is animism, okay, the worship of nature, you know, gods in trees and rocks and volcanoes. That's the oldest form of religion. And then it evolves more into polytheism, where the gods kind of exist in skies and things. And then from there, polytheism evolves to henotheism, that amongst all the gods, one is the greatest, okay? like Zeus, the greatest, and then all the gods. And then from henotheism, it evolves into monotheism. Well, there is just one god. Okay? And then it's going to evolve eventually into atheism. And they say, as Darwin's, you know, showed the evolutionary process in biology, so we can demonstrate it here. Uh, in the origin of religion. And they're relying on an old theory here that has been debunked for many years. As Solomon said, there's really nothing new under the sun. Well, the historical research has shown that this thing is actually upside down. Uh, Wilhelm Schmidt showed in the early 20th century, along with Don Richards today in his work, Eternity in Their Hearts, shown that this thing is actually upside down. The oldest religion is actually monotheism. Wilhelm Schmidt discovered in hundreds of cultures all over the world, that the oldest form of religion was monotheism, a belief in a heavenly father. I've written uh, an article on this, if you want to read. It's called The Origin of Religion. And the historical research shows this. Romans chapter 1 shows the history of the origin of religion. Romans chapter 1 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all men are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God uh, for Im- images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And so Romans chapter 1 shows the progression here. We begin with monotheism. And as a result of monotheism, it degenerates eventually into polytheism and then animism. And a historical research from Wilhelm Schmidt and Don Richardson indeed showed this. They were receiving reports from all over the world from missionaries, and they discovered that in all cultures of the world, the oldest belief was a belief in a heavenly father. And somehow, uh, knowledge of the heavenly father was lost because the people had angered the heavenly father. And as a result, they had lost communication with him and began worshiping lesser gods and eventually worshiping nature and the things around them. So actually, it went like this. They showed that uh, religion originates with God revealing himself to man. The oldest form of religion was monotheism, the belief in a heavenly father. And eventually, cultures depart from monotheism to polytheism and eventually animism. They discovered animism and witchcraft and shamanism are the youngest of the religions. The most ancient is monotheism. Uh, The historical facts uphold the biblical teachings in Romans chapter 1. Now, how are we to meet the challenge? We see the four basic arguments there, and we see that we can clearly answer their four arguments quite easily. Well, how are we called to meet this challenge of the new atheists? Well, first of all, we don't need to be afraid. Uh, The Bible and God are big enough to stand for themselves. As hard as these men try, as much as they're putting out in movies and PBS specials and best-selling books, there are more people in the world that believe in God than ever before. Over 95% of people in the world believe in God. Over 90% of people in the United States believe in a God. How are we to meet the challenge of the new atheists that we may run into? Well, first, we're to love those who question and even attack our faith in Christ. God said, uh, Jesus said, you know, to pray for those who persecute you. And loving them means that we listen and answer their arguments with love and respect. 1 Peter 3.15, but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. And the end of the verse says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Okay, some of your translations say reverence. And the same reverence you show to God are what you show to those who are seeking answers from you. So we're to give an answer. We're not to back down or run away from the challenges that come upon us. We're called to give an intelligent answer with integrity and love and gentleness and respect for the arguments that come up against us. At the same time, we must not cast our pearls before swine as Jesus taught. In other words, if the person coming is insincere and hostile and just wants to argue with you and uh, is not really looking for answers to his questions, there's really no need to waste our time with that kind of person. (laughs) You can eventually move on to those who are sincerely seeking or asking. Uh, There's a couple guys. They attend every Sunday school they can, uh, two atheists, attend whatever seminar they can in their area. And what they want to do is they're not looking for answers. They're just there to ask questions and stump the seminar leader or the Sunday school teacher. And when they stump them, you know, that's what they put all over their website. I asked a Christian this question, I attended Sunday school, and I stumped him because I asked him and all that. Uh, they've attended several of my seminars, tried to 
you know, ask questions and things and stuff they put on their website. Once they invited me out to coffee and uh, were trying to stump me so they could put more on their website. Uh, eventually, there came a point where I said, hey, guys, you're not sincerely asking. And really, I need to be spending my time with people who are sincerely looking. So as much as I like you guys, and I know you're going to put all this stuff on your blog, you're just looking for stuff to put on your blog, you know, for the atheists. Uh, I need to move on, so my communication and time with you is coming to an end. Okay? You don't need to constantly be trying to answer guys that aren't sincerely looking. Finally, evangelism in our day is going to involve apologetics. Apologetics is often called the thinking arm of evangelism okay, or pre-evangelism because skeptics often need good answers before they'll take seriously the message of the gospel. Now, the goal of the new atheists is to rid the world of faith in God, yet the majority of the world continues to believe in God. Psalm 14.21 states, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The new atheists say that faith in God is irrational, but might it be the new atheists who are the ones being irrational? Thank you so much for joining us for Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zuckerman. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and intellectually considers the claims of Christ. We hope to address issues like the new atheist impact on spirituality and society in an honest and loving way. And we'd like to ask you to join us. Please support us with your tax-deductible financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. It's all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Dr. 